the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. been going through the book of Acts and we're learning to act right. When I say that, I mean, of course, we want to learn how to act right, but we also want to read the book of Acts right. So <clears throat> turn to Acts chapter 8. That's where we last left off. If you remember last week, we talked about Stephen he was one of the guys that they had appointed to take care of the food distribution in the church. He wasn't an apostle, but he was a mighty anointed man of God, and he went about doing good, and he was doing probably greater works than most of the apostles were doing. And he was preaching so good, he got himself in trouble with the religious folks. And that's easy to do. <laughs> you start telling the truth, them religious folks, <laughs> they'll get mad about that, but you got to do it anyway. Anyway, Stephen uh, was... Had them so angry, he told them the truth, told them that they were the ones who crucified Jesus, and they, they got so mad they stoned him to death. And when they did, they, before they did, they took their coats off and they laid them at, a, at the feet of a man named Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee, and you might recognize that name. He would later go on to become the Apostle Paul after his conversion later on that we'll probably get to. And on Wednesday coming up. But in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says Saul was one of the witnesses, and he completely agreed with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the churches in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea, in Samaria. Well, thanks. Way to go, Stephen. You got us in trouble. You done got us dispersed. You done broke the church up. Now you done started this persecution. You went out and preached the truth. You weren't even one of the apostles, you know. You just, you're just a food server, but you're out there preaching the truth and got us all in trouble. Thanks a lot, Stephen. I'm not going to be uh, sarcastic like I was last Wednesday. <laughs> That didn't go over well. I was like, I had a bad taste in my mouth. I was trying to be sarcastic the first half of last Wednesday. You remember that? And both of y'all, y'all were out there like, cricket, cricket. I, don't, I was wondering, did they get it? Or was I not being sarcastic enough? <clears throat> but anyway, Stephen has stirred up some trouble here. In verse 2 it says, Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging both men and women to throw them into prison. Yep, he would later become the one who would write most of the New Testament. But at this point in his career, he is persecuting Christians. You know, for 12 years I had an airport job. My first couple of years in that airport job, I worked on like a conveyor belt thing. Man, they work you hard. I mean, it, it you know, I, would, I was working part-time, but those five hours, I would put so much labor in, I'd be just bone-tired. 
But I remember working with my crew. You know, I'd have a man working with me, and, and we had a crew, and we all got along, and uh, there was camaraderie there. But later on, as, as my seniority increased, and I, I got a better job, I got, a, I got on full-time, I started working 410s at the airport, and my job was to clean airplanes. And the thing about it is, they would only assign me like four airplanes a day. And I was working a 10-hour shift, and all I had to do was clean the cockpit. And it, at best, that could take, what, 20 minutes? <laughs> no, I was, okay, it was supposed to take a few hours, but we, you know, we got good at it, and you cut some corners, and nobody was watching, and it only took you 30 minutes. So we, I would actually work about 30 minutes a day, and then I got real good at ping pong during that time of my life. And, and basketball, and I read every Louis L'Amour book that was written and started reading other things. I, I was reading a lot. Uh, we had these radios, you know, so we had our own little carts we drove out there. It was like the, it was like some people would say your dream job. You didn't even actually have to work, you know. <laughs> and so I would sleep, and I remember t times where uh, I would leave the facility and drive home like Angie was having a, a yard sale one time. I drove home to check the yard sale because my radio would pick up from there. You know, if my boss called us, oh, yeah, I'll be right there. I'll get back. <laughs> I heard some of them went to the movies one time, so I wasn't as bad as that. But, but my point is, <laughs> see, we, our, our other responsibilities is we were on the de-ice crew. Which, you know, it, there's not a lot of reason to de-ice in Memphis, you know. And uh, on the, f the fuel spill cleanup crew in case, you know, jet fuel ever hit the ground, which never happened either. So basically I didn't work about 30 minutes a day out of my 10-hour shift. But I say all this to say that first job that I had that was so hard and demanding, there was good camaraderie between the folks. When we would have a meeting, everybody respected the boss. They were like, yes, sir, this, this and that. When this other crew that I worked with, that they also worked 10 hours a day for about 30 minutes, when we would have a meeting, it was like, oh, my gosh, won't y'all shut up? Y'all going to get us in trouble. They argued about everything. They were disrespectful to the boss like you never heard. There was so much slander going on in the back rooms. I mean, they talked about the boss bad? I'm like, this guy's letting you have this job. Shut up. Right? You would think you, they would just be quiet and yes, sir, and, and, and let it lie, but they were the most crazy bunch. You know, that's why I don't feel so bad about asking a lot of you guys sometimes. When I, you know, I start a new, we, or we start a new program or something, we put somebody in charge of it, and, and a lot of you guys are working with the kids and doing this and that, and and Angie's always trying to tell me, you know, they got a family. You don't need to ask them to come to everything. Or you don't need to, we're doing too much as a church. We're having too many fellowships. We're doing, and I'm always asking everybody to come. She's like, slow down, you know, that you're going to. But no, I believe that when you're doing things for God, it's going to, like Kevin said, it's going to work out for you. It's going to work out better for you. And hard work will keep you too busy to be whining. Common goals are vital to camaraderie. When you're working together for something and a common cause. 
Have you noticed that? Like if you go to a church where all they do is come on Sundays and they have no outreach programs, they don't do anything for the community, they, they're, you know, they're just happy where they're at. They're really not happy where they're at. That all they do is they get a good sermon and they leave and they talk bad about the preacher, you know. <laughs> that was terrible, you know. <clears throat> anyway, before I, I digress, tonight's message is called Out of Your Comfort Zone. Out of your comfort zone. Some people may say, why does life have to be so hard? Have you ever said that? You said that before the service. I said that before you got here. (laughs) We all say that. Why does life have to be so hard? Let's be honest. It's not easy on anybody. Some people, they say, you got everything, you know, you got it all together. You don't know what's going on in my house. You don't know what's going on in my body. You don't know what's going on in our health, our family, our finances. You only see what you see on the outside. We are all going through stuff. Why so many trials and temptations? Sometimes we ask God that question. God, why is it so hard? Why so many trials and temptations? It leads a lot of people You see them just living for the weekend. They give up on, you know, their dreams and plans they had when they were a little kid. You know, they want to be an an astronaut or something big. They wanted to do something important. And eventually life just beats them down. So they're just, man, thank God it's Friday, you know. Or you got some people that's got a little more vision in it. They're thinking, man, when I retire one day. They're just living for retirement like those last Five or ten years of their life is just going to make it all worthwhile, you know. <laughs> that golden years where I don't have to work, you know. They're, they're placing all their hope on retirement. A lot of people just feel like if, and they, they feel like they found a little comfort zone. They feel like they, okay, well, this isn't stressing me too bad. If I stay right here in this chair, you know, with that channel on at this hour, you know, I'll be Okay. In life, I can, I can manage it. It'll be comfortable. I can just stay here. So we ask God, why can't I be comfortable? God would say, I believe, because comfort is the enemy of your destiny. Don't you think God would say that? I believe if he was here, he would say comfort is the enemy of your destiny. I'm sure you've heard the story about eagles, how they build their nest in the crags of the cliffs somewhere way up high, and they have their little eaglets or whatever, and they're growing up, and and they get big enough, you know, it's about time for them to take off flying. Well, they're hesitant to do so. They're way up here, and they've never flown before, and they don't want to smash into the rocks. But the mom knows, hey, it's time for you to get out of your comfort zone. So the, the eagle will start pulling out some of the soft stuffing, and the little eaglet's like, Mom, that's my pillow, you know, my blanket, you know, what are you doing? Pretty soon they're sitting on the rock, you know, it's like it's not comfortable anymore. They make things uncomfortable for their little babies until finally one of them steps out and says, okay, let's try these wings, I'm out of here. <laughs> Some of you, you never did anything until your life until your boss fired you or something, <laughs> you know. You, you, some, your parents kicked you out finally and you had to fly. Sometimes we need somebody to take away the stuffing, Take away our little 
pillow and our comfort blanket, you know. What do they call it? The, some of you still got a little binky in your mouth, you know. <laughs> Y'all know this ain't heaven yet, right? This, this is nowhere near heaven. The earth has been cursed because of the sin of Adam. You remember Genesis chapter 3? God said, because of that, you know, you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. The, the ground is just going to be, it's going to raise up thorns and thistles, and nothing is going to be easy. If we wanted it easy, then we need to blame Adam. Because he's the one brought the curse on the earth. And that's why sin, sin is the enemy. Have you figured that out yet? We think sin, well, it's no big deal. I can get away with it. No, sin is the whole problem while we're all living in this condition. And this ain't heaven yet. Say, look at your neighbor and say, this ain't heaven. They know, they know. So God doesn't want us too comfortable down here. He doesn't want us putting down roots on this temporary situation. Because there's coming a day when he's going to remodel the earth. He's, he, God's a fixer-upper. Psalms 23 says that Jesus leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, right? doesn't say that he says, hey, let's stop and camp here. He's leading us through the valley. He had Abraham live in a tent. He wouldn't let David build him a, you know, a, a permanent structure. God decided to live in a box so he could be with his people. Jesus said, I have no place to lay my head. See, God's people are nomads here on the earth. We're not permanent fixtures unless you want to perish with the earth. God's people should see. A... Hebrews 11 says we were longing for a better home. That the, we were, too, we're too good for this world. You know, if we're willing to do what God would have us do, like the heroes in Hebrews chapter 11. So are you frustrated? You can't get comfortable? It seems like every time you get things going right, you get a demotion or a friend. Or a husband or a, a pastor even, you know. Somebody tweaks your nerves. Can't get comfortable. Well, my message tonight is relax. Because frustration can be your friend. Frustration might be one of your best friends. Kevin, your testimony tonight started with what? Frustration. Situations outside of your control, life getting you out of your comfort zones, causing you to respond. Let's go ahead and watch that first video. I got two videos tonight. <laughs> this one's pretty good. The second one's even better. You feel defeated. You're frustrated right now. 
You think you're the only one who's been told it's over? You think you're the only one that's ever been told you're not good enough? You think you're the only one that's been told you're a failure? Head hanging down, look at you. You think you're the only one that's been told you're never gonna make it. That there's so many others that are better than you. Just because it didn't work out today. Just because it didn't work out the way you wanted it to. You wasn't created to be normal. You wasn't created to be average. You're not mediocre. There's greatness within you. There's greatness within you. And the only way to the next level of your greatness is through your frustration. The most faithful people are the most frustrated people. Why? Because they're committed to the cause. They're dedicated. They're deeply engaged. In everything that you do, you give it your all. And when you give it your all, you expect results. Well, go through the pain. Deal with it. Deal with the hurt. and even your spirit. Be willing to do whatever it takes. Be willing to do what no one else wants to do. Tell yourself, I'm gonna fight. I'm gonna be stronger. I'm gonna be better. I'm gonna keep fighting. Be thankful for that frustration because without it, you may have never known how great you really are. Let that frustration push you into greatness. It's either gonna bury you or make you great. <laughs> Creatures of comfort grow soft. And you may be picturing somebody in your mind right now, but don't say their name out loud. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. People who just are dominated by their flesh nature. They never tell themselves no. They live for comfort, whether it's through food or activities or whatever they do you know to get away with it. have you noticed the more you spend more energy trying to get out of work than if you would have just went ahead and did the job <laughs> I was at Popeye's I told the story you know about a year ago and there was this employee came out was supposed to sweep the, the thing and he was just looking like that and he would just do it like that until the boss watched and then he was the boss turned on me and he it took him 30 minutes to sweep about four tables. And I thought myself, if you would have just swept the four tables in the first five minutes, how long must his night seem to him? <laughs> I know, because I've done that kind of thing. You have too, so don't, don't be blaming the fella. <laughs> Creatures of comfort grow soft. I think about Israel, you know, they were soft in the desert. But that generation died away. They couldn't go in. They weren't man and woman enough to go in. But God raised up a next generation. And he led them in with Joshua. They went across the Jordan. And they went in. And man, they were on fire. That generation was on fire. And they took what was theirs. God said, the promised land is yours. Go in. I'm giving it to you. But they had to take it. They had to go in and wipe those evil cities out. And they had to take possession of the land. And they did. And they served God. And they lived in houses that they didn't build. And God blessed them greatly. And they were all excited about God. And they said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And they followed Joshua till, till he died. But then the next generation comes along. And things are going good. They have 
not quite as much respect for what it took to get to where they got. And so they're not thankful. They begin to take things for granted. The second generation loses it. Third generation, pretty soon, they're following other gods. They had everything that their hearts could desire. They were living in the land flowing with milk and honey. But they weren't happy. So they began to whore after other gods. Then they would get themselves in trouble. Other nations would attack. God would take his hand of protection off until they would get in trouble. Then they would finally cry out to God. And God in his mercy would send a, a judge or a prophet or deliverer and come in and give them victory and give them the land back and give them, give them their comfort back. He would give them their heart's desire. But the thing about it is, it was always in the good times that they left God. In the bad times, they were always crying out to God. What is it about human nature? We only cry out to God when we need Him for something. They always forgot God in the good times. And look at the American church. After years of religious freedom and padded pews, look at the shape we're in. We have forgotten what this is all about. We have forgotten from whence we have fallen. We, we have forgotten our first love. We got people that leave churches because of the song selection or the temperature in the sanctuary. Is that how fragile your Christianity is? Doesn't your love of Jesus and his call upon your life mean more than that? But it's only human nature to to care about the things you work for. And that's why I say I'm not afraid to get you working for the kingdom of God. Because you buy ownership into what we're doing here. You buy ownership into the kingdom of God and it means something to you. My daughter back there, I, I bought her her first car. It was an old truck actually. It wasn't, wasn't really nice, but it, it drove. <laughs> she never washed it. Not once she had it, that I don't think. She couldn't afford gas in it in the first place, so we traded it for another car, a little nicer car. Never washed that thing. Never cleaned it out. <laughs> Kaylee, come on now. We're in church. Okay, there was that time. All right. then, then she hit a deer. She hit a deer, totaled the car. And I helped her get another one, and, but she, she began to pay on that one a little bit. But it wasn't a very nice car, you know. It was just a, something that she could begin to afford. Didn't wash it. <laughs> Didn't clean it out. Then she hit a deer. <laughs> True story. But now, and she went for a period without a car. And now she's beginning to see what it's like without a car. But now she's got a good job. She's, she's really uh, developed a lot of personal responsibility for her life. I'm very proud of her. And she wanted to uh, get a car and pay notes on it and get something nicer because I will admit the cars she had before weren't very trustworthy. Okay? So we went up and, and uh, I helped her sign on a loan to get her a car. She's paying car notes and whatever. And she's putting her hard-earned money into it. And guess what? 
the hose is wound all over the yard, and there's brushes and water bill sky high. She ain't cut it off in that one high. She comes home fussing because, you know, there's dust on her car. What happened? I mowed the yard. <laughs> what about uh, King David? You know, he, man, he was quite the character. He, he didn't live in a comfortable world his whole life until he became king. But once he became king, he kind of got comfortable in the role of king. And then it says uh, one season when the kings usually went out to war like he used to do, he decided to stay back at the palace. Doesn't begin to like those comforts a little too much. And he was on his rooftop, and he looked on another rooftop, and he saw something he shouldn't have saw that was named Bathsheba, somebody else's wife. Y'all know the story. He had to have her. It caused him to get in big trouble because he ended up killing her husband and the guys that were with him to cover up his sin. Not good. But it was because... He had become comfortable. He wasn't doing the things that got him to where he got. He stopped somewhere along the line and just wanted to put life on cruise control, on autopilot, just like we talked about marriages. Life doesn't work like that. I've heard it said, and I'm not sure if it's true or not, but you, you can't be in neutral in your Christianity or in your life. You're either going forward or you're going re in reverse. You, you just don't sit very well. See, the earth is in motion. Isn't it spinning around at like 14,000 miles an hour? I'm just making that number up, but I think it, it's rotating pretty fast. And if you just want to stop your life and sit here and, and on your lounge chair, it's going to pass you by. Yep. Mm-hmm. What is that saying? I was trying to think of it today about idle hands being the devil's workshop or something like that. Now, that's not in the Bible, but it's just a saying. But have you noticed? I, I mean, I notice when I don't have anything to do and there's nobody to keep me in line, I'll probably find something bad to do. My brain will go places it normally doesn't go. We have to keep our... See, our brains are like vacuum cleaners. They're just sucking up all the time. You can't stop thinking. There's no way you can stop thinking, even right now. If I say yellow submarine, there's no way you're not picturing one in your mind right now. <laughs> Does anybody in here, his brain stop for any length of time? No. And so you can't stop. You've got to keep doing positive things in your life. Resistance makes you strong. You know, when I go to the gym and I got those big 45-pound plates, that's resistance. They're my enemy. I'm trying to push them off of me. <laughs> but in resisting my enemy, it's creating me to be a stronger person. Your enemy can make you stronger. Whew. Why was the World War II generation known as the greatest generation, do you suppose? You know, those who fought in World War II, that generation, they were known as the great generation, greatest generation. Why do, you, why do you suppose that? Because they were the ones who faced the greatest challenge. And they responded to it. We look at our millennials or Generation Z or X or whatever they're called today, we think, no way, you know, the, 
it's over with for America. No, they're just growing up in a comfort land. If we were faced with something, I have every expectation that they would rise up and meet the challenges. Those kids back there are hungry to do things for God, but we just don't give them the opportunity. We take them to Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> I mean, Chuck E. Cheese is fine, but not every day. <clears throat> you used to work at Chuck E. Cheese. Let's just all stretch our hands. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for bringing her out of cheese land, Lord. Delivering her from that mouth. <laughs> okay, so many of y'all don't know we have a Sunday night service because I hadn't seen many of you attending. Y'all didn't know we have a Sunday night service? Yes, we do. What time? 6.30 at the Soto County Jail. Oh, okay. Well, we've been, we've been doing jail ministry down there for 20 years now or more. Every Sunday night, we do two or three services down there. And if you would like to go see Brother Tom in the back, he's responsible for that. I started going about 12 years ago. It's been the, one of the biggest blessings of my life. Anyway, they got different pods they bring in, and Brother Tom will preach down here, Brother Joe or Cody or, or Daniel or somebody will preach down here and somebody else will preach down here. I think, Kevin, you've been before. Or other, others have been with us. Um, but a couple weeks ago, I was in this one particular area, uh, Section C or whatever, and they brought down this pod. These are the guys that uh, are not loud in general population. They're either too rough or their crimes were too violent or they got some kind of disease or something they can't be put in general population so um and we get them a lot and and so i began to play the guitar bring my guitar in there and i was singing some songs and they were singing with me and i mean just singing loud you, you know normally yeah, it's a, a chore to get them guys in the yellow suits to start singing with you but i'll tell you some of the best praise and worship i've ever been a part of has been in the jail but anyway, they were just singing along with me. And then I played this next song, and they had heard me sing this one before. They started singing some harmonies. It started sounding like a choir out there. And then the, the section over here was singing a different part than the section over here. Pretty soon I was just kind of, we were singing a cappella. I just stopped playing guitar. <laughs> Pretty soon I just stopped, and they were singing. These are the roughest of the rough in the jailhouse now. Okay. So we got through. I... I went up and preached a message and felt like it was time to do an altar call, you know, and ask them to bow their head, close their eyes, wiggle their ears, and pick their nose or whatever they do. And, and so they closed their eyes, and I began to tell them about Jesus, said, who wants to receive Jesus as Lord of their life? No hands. That's unusual. We, we usually see anywhere from 12, 15, 18 a night, you know. Of course, this was a small pot, only 13 of them. But not one of them raised their hand. I was disappointed. Then I thought to myself, wait a minute. I said, everybody open your eyes. How many of you, if you died right now, you know you would go to heaven? Every hand in there. Now, these are the ones not allowed in general population. Every, all 13 of them were saved. I said, what's going on here? They said, we having Bible studies back in our pod. We have prayer meetings. I said, who's leading this? They pointed to this one guy. He says, he's like our pastor. 
The other one said, well, he leads the prayer service, and the other guy says, I do praise and worship. The one who was singing the harmonies. This is going on in the DeSoto County Jail, a revival. Isn't it just like God to use the foolish things of this world, the ones that can't even be in the regular population? But that's what's going on. But see, some men don't start fighting until they come to the end of themselves. People always talk about jailhouse salvations, you know, that ain't real or whatever. No, that's just people coming to the end of themselves. It's like little kids being put in time out. They have a chance to think about their situation. And then that's where they, make, they finally come to their senses, give their heart to Jesus, and they can understand these things. Some people nearly come to the end of themselves and then stop fighting. That's different, like people who just wait for retirement. And then they retire, and then they don't do anything. And you all know somebody that retired, and two months later, they're dead and gone. Because it was just too much of a shock of their body. They work every day of their life. They're using their brain. And all of a sudden, they just stop using anything. And then you, don't, you have some people that don't find their greatness until they find their foe. What do I mean? What about Larry Bird? What would he be without Magic Johnson? Or what would Magic Johnson be without Larry Bird? They were foes. They hated one another. But they pushed one another to greatness. Like Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Sometimes you need a foe to push you. A good enemy can make you stronger. Am I turning things upside down for you? Because God turns everything upside down for me. When I, when I begin to see God's way, I just don't. It, it's, it's 180 degrees to the world's way. A good enemy can make you stronger. Like I talked about those weights. And that's where, I believe that's why God left the devil down here, to give us a punching bag, something to work out on. Right? Because we have, once we learn that we have authority over him, he's just a punching bag is all he is. All he can do is, is help us to lie on our own selves and, and deceive us. But once we understand, once we grow past believing those lies anymore, he's just a tool that God uses to sharpen our game, to teach us how to overcome, to teach us how to be victorious in this life. So I, I, I reckon that's why God left him under here. Because victory is for those who will persevere. This is a long life, hopefully. You know, not, we're not, not all given a long life, but if you've given, been given 40 or 50 years, I've been here 50 years, it seemed long to me. <laughs> and this world's got a lot of one-hit wonders. You know, somebody that did something one time, they sang that song back in the 60s, and now they're living off the royalties 50 years later, you know, but they only had that one hit. The world is, is famous for one-hit wonders, but not so much in God's kingdom. God looks at our life as a full body of work. Good, bad, and ugly. You know, like King David's life. His life was more than just that failure with Bathsheba. It was characterized also by his repentance after that. David did so many things wrong, but the one thing he always did right was repent quickly and come back to God. How many people do you know 
that failed God and then ran from God, and you don't see them. They were so excited. They were here at church on the front row, and they, then they must have done something and then got under condemnation. The devil lied to them, and they were gone, and they were running from God again. Don't do that. Victory is for those who persevere. King David's life was more than his failures. It was, it was in his persistence and his never-quittery. That's the word for tonight. I've made it up. It was his never-quittery. He never quit. He, Angie used to say that about me. He never knew when to quit. His life was more than just the victory of defeating Goliath. But it was in his humility of being a faithful servant and of being a faithful shepherd and fighting the lion and the bear when nobody was watching. See, his life was multifaceted, and yours is too. It was more than just him taking the throne of Israel. It was about him not taking the life of Saul when he had the chance. It's not just what you do, it's sometimes it's what you don't do. People have a lot to say about greatness. James C. Collins says, greatness is not a function of circumstance. I don't think, I don't think people are just born great. They may have some great abilities, but I don't think people are born great. Greatness, it turns out, is largely a matter of conscious choice and discipline. Discipline. We don't like that word. But listen to this. this. Angie had this on the refrigerator, and, and I had to steal it. Jim Rohn said, we must all suffer one of two pains, either the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. And that's pretty much true. You're, you're going to suffer pain in this life, but is it going to be the pain of you disciplining yourself under the mighty hand of God, or is it going to be the pain of your regret that you didn't discipline yourself and you let the enemy win? There was a guy named Guy Sheffield who wrote this this afternoon, says, those who would be great view suffering like a kite views the wind. Man, I'm, in, I'm deep, I'm deep. Turn in your Bibles. Matthew 11. I don't know. I don't appreciate all that laughter going on. I know. But I, last week I fell on my face. I had a, say it again. I don't know. What did I say? Um, those who would be great view suffering like a kite views the wind. Place to launch from. Matthew 11, verse 7. We're going to talk about John the Baptist. We're going to go a little long tonight. I can see that. Do y'all mind? As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to talk talking about him to the crowd. You see, John's had sent his disciples. John was in prison. John has been this man of faith and power, and now all of a sudden, 
John's heart is broken because he's in prison and Jesus is not getting him out. And he's beginning to have doubts about Jesus. And so he sends his disciples to say, are you the Messiah? <laughs> if so, why am I still over in jail? You know, you should, you should be getting me out, Jesus. We're, I mean, we're cousins. But he says, but Jesus says, what kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was it a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No. People with expensive clothes live in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes. And he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare the way before you. I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. And from the time John the Baptist began to preach until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. He said, what kind of man did you go to see? Was it just some weak sissy wearing some silk clothes or something? Or did you go to see a man who stood up and faced trials and tribulations, understood the time in which he lived and the short amount of time that we get here on the earth, and was willing to embrace suffering, willing to do what it took to advance the kingdom of God, he has gone before the Messiah. Are we going before the Messiah and making his path straight? Or are we just trying to camp out here in the valley? And then it says on this last part, John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and violent people are attacking it. There is a war going on, Hello? Are we living like we're at war? Well, who do you, what do you mean, Pastor? You mean violent extremists? Who are we at war with? No, no, no. Not flesh and blood. Powers of the dark, unseen world. Rulers. Wickedness in heavenly places. We don't war against flesh and blood. We war against the enemy, the devil, who's trying to take with him all those that he can get in bondage and, and, and go over into hell with. And we're trying to rescue them. We got to see bigger. Jesus now, he had the ability to love like no other. Would you agree? He performed miracles. His teaching, it photobombed the course of human history. I mean, we're... Wherever you see human history, you see Jesus in the picture. Because his teaching has been so relevant. He photobombed human history with his teaching. He radically changed the way we view God, how we view righteousness. But it was all gently framed with the humility to make himself of no reputation while willingly and silently suffering the most grievous injustice the world has ever known. How did he do that? How can, how can he be so influential but so humble? How can he be such a contrast? How can he do all things at once? Well, I wrote these steps. He did it by walking each step with the Father. He said, I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what I hear, hear the Father say. And his comfort was found in God. He, he, he was comforted in God. And his motivation was found in you. 
You were his motivation. Will we find our comfort and motivation anywhere else? Where are we looking for it? Don't we need God just like Jesus needed the Father? Don't we need each other to motivate us just like Jesus did? What is our motivation? Why are you seeing yourself here? What is your reason for existence? If you, if you already have heaven as the surety of your home when we die, why are you still here? William Ward said, Greatness is not found in possessions, power, position, or prestige. It is discovered in goodness, humility, service, and character. Paul said, Philippians 4.12, he said, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere in all things. I'm instructed to be full but yet hungry, both to abound and have plenty but also to suffer need. Then he says the famous line that we all could quote, I can do all things through Christ. We always say that scripture, you know, I can do these great things. I can do this. I can do that. But he's talking about both being abased and abound, to have little and to have plenty, to have hard times and to have good. He can do whatever life brings his way, whatever God allows him to face, whatever storm, whatever trial, or whatever great victory it is, he can do all things through Christ because God will strengthen him. God is his comfort. And it goes on, nobody quotes this, in verse 14, notwithstanding, you have done well that you did communicate with my affliction. That's King James. But he's saying that you gave into my ministry. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, I don't need anybody else. But you did so good that you gave into my ministry and helped me when I needed it. He's saying, God is enough but having you as well, that, my friends, is life. Having God and having each other. Serving one another. Our flesh will never lead us to greatness. Your flesh will never lead you to anywhere good, even. Your flesh, let's just be honest. Let's not, be, let's not even go there. Let's not be honest. <laughs> Your flesh will never lead you to greatness, but our greatness is built day by day, walking hand in hand with our Lord and other like-minded people. It sounds easy, but walking with God is not for the puny or the faint-hearted. It's the road less traveled. Any old fool can walk on that broad path that leads to destruction. Oh, kuna matata, come what may. But a person who wants to make their life count gets on the straight and narrow. Straightens up, has discipline, so they don't have the pain of regret. Let's watch that other video. We got to close. I'm sorry, we're running late. I get to preaching these messages. I, sh I probably shouldn't show this video.
Many years pass. Jacob is dead. The Israelites that came through his family, they're enslaved in Egypt, and God appears to a man named Moses. Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. And Moses asks God the same thing Jacob asked God. He said, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, I preach that verse a lot, but I never preach the next one. And I'm going to leave you with it. Because the next thing God said to Moses is, Say to the Israelites, when they want to know who I am and what kind of God I am, tell them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and I'm thinking he's going to say the God of Israel, because that's Jacob's good side. That's the new Jacob. If you're God and you want to make yourself known, wouldn't you call yourself the God of Israel? Wouldn't you want to be the God of their good side? Wouldn't you want to be the God of the guy who, who was changed in the wrestling match? But yet he says to Moses, and he says to you today, if you want to know who I am, you need to understand, I'm the God of Jacob too. I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the God of that part of you that you don't want anybody to see. I'm not just the God of your success. I'm the God of your struggle. I'm the God of Jacob too. I'm not just the God of your victories. I'm the God of your defeats. I'm the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob is in this place. His name is Jesus. He's full of mercy, full of grace, full of truth. Oh, God of Jacob. So, some of you were sitting here thinking, you know, but you don't know about my past. You don't know what I've done. How, I, I can't do anything for God. Remember, God is about your full body of work. You turn it all over to Him, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and you just walk with Him. And He will take the things that you thought were the worst times of your life, and the worst sins that you have ever committed, and He will begin to to shine his light through those cracks of your life. And he will take the full body of your work. He knows where you've been, what you've done, and he loves you anyway. Just hold his hand and care about what he cares about. Don't tell God that you have this big problem. Tell your problem that you got this big God. I guess we better close. I got a couple more pages, but uh, I don't know why I always go so long. But let me just ask you this. We live in America. Let me, let me present you a scenario. America just keeps going the way it is. We keep being the world superpower. You know, we got the strongest military. 
We got more Chinese plastic doodads at Walmart than anybody could ever put fit in all their drawers. And we buy plastic doodads to carry more plastic doodads. <laughs> so, so we're comfortable. We're the most comfortable nation ever has resided on planet Earth. But yet, millions here in America are going to hell every day. Not every day, but I mean on the way to hell. Millions of people so comfortable that they don't know to reach out for God. Let me ask you another question. Who is closer to heaven? The rich man who has all the comforts of this life. He's got a good job. Got a beautiful wife. Has everything his heart could desire here on planet earth. Or the, the lowly harlot, drug addicted in an alley somewhere. Which one would you think is closest to God if neither one of them had given their heart to Jesus? They're probably in about the same place. But I would say that the one who is coming to the end of themselves may be closer to making a different decision for their life. Why? Because their comfort has been snatched out from under them. And see, as bad as we want America to stay where it is, and as much as we want comfort, much as we don't want persecution for the church, and much as we don't want darkness to invade here, and much as we don't like to see the things that's going on in this nation right now, it might be time to shake up America. God may be taking his hand off of America till, till we cry out. We turn from our wicked ways and cry out to God. And the funny thing is about 2 Corinthians, uh, what's it called? Second, what's that scripture? If my people which are called by my name, Chronicles 7.14, if my people which are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways and uh, pray and hear from heaven, then will I forgive their sins and heal their land. The funny thing about it, he, I used to think, well, America's not going to pray. You know, America's past gone now. You know, most of the people don't even believe anymore, much less they're not going to pray. America as a whole is not going to turn to God. But it didn't say the regular people. It says if my people, if my people will turn from their wicked ways. What? His people in wicked ways? apparently if my people which are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways humble themselves and seek my face I will hear from heaven so it's up to us judgment first begins at the house of God we need to get out of our comfort zone and get into the fields they're white to harvest Stephen, they may have thought, man, he's done messed it up for us. He's done dispersed the churches. Man, all the people have had to go to different cities, and we can't have church, big church like we used to have. Maybe we don't need to have church like we used to have anymore. I was talking to somebody today, trying to minister to them. They said, they don't want to go to church anymore. I said, I want to talk to you. They said, why? I said, I want to find out why you don't want to go to church anymore. I want to find out, maybe you have some better ideas of how church can be more effective. 
Because I'm open. How to us to become what God created us to be. Soul winning machines. I'm eager to hear some ideas. Anyway, Stephen didn't mess it up. Acts 8.4, if we went on from our original text, said, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. It was during the persecution that the gospel went out to the world. Without the persecution, they may have just stayed in their little comfy church in Jerusalem and never went anywhere. But the persecution drove them into all the world where the gospel needed to be preached. Without persecution, the church would have never spread. Don't look now, but another trial is just around your corner. I'm not prophesying that on you. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. In this world, you shall have tribulation. But frustration can become your friend if you let it. Stop viewing everything the way you view it and begin to see in the context of your position. You're positionally seated with Christ in heavenly places. Begin to look from above instead of beneath. Begin to sip your perspective. Come out of your comfort zone. Stop striving to get back into it. It's the enemy of your destiny. Let's get out of our comfort zones. Let's be men and women of faith. We just need a new perspective on why we're here. Maybe we just need a little more persistence and never quittery. Either way, whatever you put in God's hand, he'll use it. I'm going to go ahead and pray and close. If there's anyone that doesn't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'll be up here after the service. I would love to talk with you. I'm going to go ahead and close because I've gone a little late. listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.